There's an old joke. Bankers never die, they just lose interest. That's funny enough. It's funny enough for a finance podcast, right? So interest rates, you've certainly paid them. But why did you pay the particular interest rate you had to pay? Who figures that out? That calculation is related to a lot of other stuff. To the inflation rate, for example. To economic growth? Maybe even to the employment rate. I have no idea what we're talking about. If only there was a podcast that would explain these things. Hmm, maybe we could do one. We work at a bank, after all. What should we call it? How about a dictionary of finance? A dictionary of finance. That's brilliant. Let's do it. To talk about interest rates, inflation, growth, and employment, we're joined by Natasha Valla and Marcus Bent. Marcus is the head of the Operational Strategy and Business Development Division of the European Investment Bank. When he was at the university, he played in a rock band and released two records. He says that unfortunately, they never managed to become famous enough, which is why Marcus then had to stick with economics. Natasha Valla is the head of the Policy and Strategy Division in the Economics Department at the European Investment Bank, the area that Marcus used to run, in fact. She studies investment dynamics and international capital flows. Mm, we should have a whole podcast about investment dynamics and international capital flows. We should. I guess the main purpose of these podcasts is to show how much we don't know about economics so that our guests will return to do more podcasts out of pity for their poor, uninformed colleagues, Alar and Matt. But let's start with the basic definition. So, Marcus, can you tell us what is inflation? Okay, well, um, inflation conceptually is um, the difference of, or the development of, if you, let me start another way. So if you have a basket of goods, so uh, everything that a normal household is buying uh, over the course of the year, if you take uh, the prices of uh, this goods, these goods, the total price that you would have to pay for this basket of goods, and compare uh, the price you paid last year with the price you would have to pay for the exact same, a basket of goods uh, one year later. Okay. That difference is uh, the percentage change between price before and price now is, is uh, the, the inflation. This basket of goods is, is extremely interesting. For example, last year in, in the UK, uh, I understand they, they removed from the basket uh, things like CD-ROMs and uh, nightclub tickets, and they included in the basket of goods coffee pots, and um, women's leggings. So, is this is this basket of goods? Is this a constant thing across geographies, or is this a different? Does it depend on what people actually spend their money on in different countries, or how does it? Well, I, I guess ideally it should be a, a reflection of what uh, what affects uh, people da people's daily lives. And if uh, CD-ROMs become less important, which is probably the case. Uh, less important than MP3 players, then you have to at some point adjust and, and put MP3 players in and take CD, CD-ROMs out. But mm -hmm. why does it change at all? Why is there inflation? That basket of goods a year ago, why is it different today? Oh, uh, well, there doesn't have to be inflation. It's not a natural uh, phenomenon. Uh, we, we, uh, it's actually in the, and I'm sure Natasha, who's worked at the central bank, unlike me, uh, can, can add to that, uh, but it is in the interest of uh, of the economy that there is some sort of inflation, some sort of inflation, because it uh, it um, 
uh, it supports uh, um, the adjustments of relative prices in the economy. For example, if I work in, I have a certain job, I'm producing a certain good, uh, or the company that I work for produces a certain good, um, the society starts putting less relative value to that good and is paying willing or is actually valuing my work slightly less or is less important to the uh, to the uh, to the economy if if i don't have inflation then it's then at some point i have to reduce my real wage because i don't you know in the distribution of wealth uh, or the, the allocation of of of, uh, of the benefits of what is being produced um, I would actually receive a smaller share. So if there's a, and that makes is, is very hard to to um, have a real nominal cut. Whereas it's easier if if inflation is uh, is there, then all the prices increase. Uh, let's say by two percent. Um, most of the people's wages increase by two percent, but not mine because so I stay with the current one. But then in relative terms. My wage has been reduced compared to the others, which uh, which allows allows the adjustments to take place. So then later on, maybe I'm looking for a different job, or uh, other people won't take the job again that I'm currently having. Uh, but uh, in, in in general, inflation helps uh, these kind of adjustments to take place, I mean, and many other things that it helps, which I'm sure maybe. Natasha can add to. No, <laughs> maybe just to put some perspective on what Marcus was saying, it's a matter of supply and demand. If you produce something, a good, and the supply of that good is big and the demand is small, then the price of it will have a tendency to fall because there's oversupply. On the contrary, when your demand for, say, um, you were speaking about CD-ROMs, now we don't demand that many CD-ROMs anymore. So the prices of CD-ROMs, very likely for a given you know, number of factories producing them, has been going down. So this is the reason why prices go up and prices go down. Now, over time, you can have a sequence of years where, you know, the economy is doing well, you know, people have high, higher wages, they earn more, disposable income is higher. So prices will have to, a tendency to rise over a few years, and then the cycle turns around, and we go to a downside of the economic cycle, and then that's when inflation tends to decrease. So we have, over time, as a reflection of what Marcus was saying, over time we have waves, real waves of inflation going up and down as the economic cycle evolves. And in a sense, that is why central banks, most central banks in the world right now, have taken inflation as a target for their policies, because they want to stabilize uh, the economy. But the goal uh, is to avoid the waves, the cycles. The goal is to keep it right. steady, right? So, so, so the, the central bank says that they want the inflation to be below 2%, but close to 2%. So you, that's the magic formula. Where does that come you've, from? You've learned the ECB formula very well. It's yes. only the ECB who defines inflation in that very specific ter uh, okay. term, meaning too close to, but below 2%. Now, there are two goals, I would say, and even three goals now uh, to, 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 to target inflation. One in the past was to avoid hyperinflation. So to avoid from one to the other, prices to escalate so fast that people couldn't really keep up. Wages were too slow to adjust, so the you know, income was too low, and then it was, it was really yielding uh, to instability. So that was really the idea for central banks to start targeting inflation was to avoid those episodes. Now, funny enough, and I'm sure Marcus can say more about it, for about a decade now, we've lived without inflation, with inflation being too low and even 
negative, which is something nobody ever thought of as realistic, at least for such a long uh, period of time. So beyond what you were mentioning, which was correct, which was smoothening the economic cycle and have some stability, there's also the idea of avoiding extreme developments in inflation in prices, either extremely high inflation rates or extremely low inflation rates. And that's the difficulty we have right now. Yeah, maybe you want to, I mean, this is not just for the sake of um, having a nice uh, inflation rate. The problem is if you have too high inflation, uh, that means that the the main purpose of mon uh, money, which is to guard value or to, you know, if you earn money, you want to have this money. And then whenever you want to spend it on, on something, uh, you want to have this available. If you have hyperinflation, obviously that is uh, that purpose is gone and it becomes useless. And then you rather hoard cigarettes or, or something else or gold. Or gold. Uh, and uh, at, uh, at the same time, uh, deflation, so when prices are falling, uh, uh, leads to a different effect, which is negative, which is that um, nobody will consume anymore. So I will not buy, uh, I will think about, I need a new chair in my kitchen. But but I'm not wait. sure if I buy a chair now because maybe next year chairs are even cheaper or, or next month. So then nobody, uh, everybody will hold back their consumption. So that's why economists have... Uh, or there is kind of consensus among economists that some inflation is good, uh, but it should be relatively low. It's not very clear. I remember that when I was at the IMF, uh, we tried to figure out what is the perfect or the the right uh, level of inflation. It's you know for Europe, we I guess we, the ECB has decided it's two percent, but it could also be in other economies that it's five or or six. We all all we know is it's certainly higher than zero, and it is uh, certainly lower than twenty or or fifty percent. So let's say the, the ECB, the European Central Bank, decides 2%. That's where we want inflation to be. How do they control it? What do they do? Right. There's normal times and there's abnormal times as we have right now. Normally what the central bank thinking is based on is one thing, uh, the evolution of money. So the central bank believes that there's a link between the quantity of money that circulates in the economy and the evolution of prices. What Marcus was saying, when... When there's more and more money, so the ECB produces 100 billion, 200 billion, 1 trillion, 2 trillion, as it has been now with quantitative easing, the quantity of money has exploded in the economy for an economic activity, the potential for the economy that has not changed that much. So the unit value of those euros should have gone down. So in normal times, the more money you have in circulation, it's related to a higher inflation rate and vice versa. So by controlling the quantity of money is one thing. Now, modern central banks take another instrument to control inflation, which is the level of interest rates. I think we are so, going to discuss so that. So basically, uh, by lowering the interest rates, they make it more appealing to spend that money. Right. Right. That's and, that, and so, therefore... Prices should, prices should start rising. That's yeah. exactly the, 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 the mechanism. So the level of inter the interest rate is the opportunity cost of holding money, but it's also the price of credit. So the lower the interest rate, the higher investment will be. This is old Keynesian economics, but this is still holding in the thinking. So lowering the interest rate gives you more credit to the economy and more support to economic activity. So you mentioned Keynesian economics. So that's from the 1930s, Right, let's you say. already had the mechanism right. I'm not saying Keynesian policies, mm -hmm. but I'm saying Keynesian mechanisms. So the link between 
the interest rates and investment dynamics and prices. Mm-hmm. So basically, the, the interest rate is the, the cost of getting money from a bank and also the, the benefit you get from keeping your savings in a bank. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, it's basically the same. The rate refers to the same um, number or right. name. In, Same cost. In, in, in practice, though, the interest rate that the central bank uh, controls is, is, is more technical. It's the, the interest rate that banks are facing for their wholesale business. And there's a whole literature on the link between the money market interest rates, so those, those wholesale interest rates, the policy rate, which is the rate that the, the central bank actually controls. It's the price of the liquidity it puts on the market on the one hand, and on the other hand, the interest rates that prevail in the economy, the one uh, the bank will quote you when you want to buy a house or when a firm wants to buy some equipment. So, so, so there is, there's a gap there. So the, the, when the central bank says that they will lower or uh, raise the interest rates, that doesn't automatically translate into me getting uh, a better percentage on my, on my, um, on my loan or, or getting a better savings account uh, interest rate. Right? So here, Marcus will have examples from the bank, from the EIBA, but this is called, what you uh, described, is called the transmission of uh-huh. monetary policy from wholesale interest rates to retail interest rates. And this transmission takes a while. It's not instantaneous. But there's indeed what we call a spread, a difference between market rates and retail interest rates. And the EIB is also having to work with that spread. Yes. Uh, well, that, that's precisely the problem. And, uh, but there's not much you can do about it. I mean, developing countries uh, sometimes try to control the, the interest rate directly, like Ethiopia, and it, it always leads to a mismatch of, of demand and, and supply. So there's, at the end, uh, the, the interest rate that you or I will face when we go to the bank trying to borrow something will... Mm-hmm. Uh, will not only depend on how cheap money is uh, at that point of time for, for let's say, the, the uh, savings bank or wherever I, I, I go. Uh, it, it also depends on uh, on um, how risky the bank... Main, the, the other main component is, is, of course, the risk riskiness that the bank puts into myself mm-hmm. when, I, uh, put, when I ask for a loan to buy a house. And that mm-hmm. then, again, that does not only depend on my own how they judge myself as being risky, but also on how they see the market developing and for house prices and, and all this. So at the end, as Natasha said, this is a very complicated and technical way trying to steer the economy and, 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 and through this transmission mechanism in a way where you don't have much control or much less than people sometimes think. So the only thing that the central bank can control is how cheap is it to, to get money from the central bank. It cannot directly control how cheap is it for banks to get money from someone else or it certainly cannot control directly how cheap is it for a retail customer for normal citizens like ourselves to get money from from the bank. It would be a crime not to mention quantitative easing in this podcast because that's the way the central bank nowadays really tries to influence inflation and really tries to influence economic activity. And in one word, quantitative easing is the ECB creating money and using that money to buy other assets. In those assets, most of those assets are government bonds, so bonds, um, debt instruments that sovereigns are issuing. But among those instruments in the euro area right now, uh, the ECB also buys 
EIB bonds. So those instruments that the EIB issues on the market to have the funding to do exactly what Marcus was saying, this quality control, allocating money. So in a sense, right now with QE, the two institutions work together with the ECB issuing a lot of money to try and, you know, in impulse inflation and have a higher inflation rate. So thanks to the quantitative easing, which you called QE for short, uh, this uh, and thanks to the central bank buying EIB bonds, we actually make sure that this money reaches the real economy, right? Absolutely. And not only reaches the real economy, but reaches in the best possible way, according to our competences. But so far, even through, you know, there's this Uh, increased supply of money and uh, low interest rates, uh, they have still not translated into higher inflation. So why is that? Well, first of all, I think inflation is picking up uh, a little bit. So I think uh, we are seeing some some positive developments in in the literal sense in terms of inflation, but we're not uh, there yet. I I think... um, and. Obviously, I mean, it's this is a, these are difficult times for economists because not everything is holding up all the time <laughs> as we <laughs> as we were hoping. But uh, for 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 the EU, it's it's investment decisions, as I um, as I as said before, are not are not only depending on how cheap is it to get credit. And, and actually, I would think that's probably the second, probably only the second or third thought. The mainly investment decisions are about. Uh, that you believe that it's worth spending money or investing money into something that will generate returns that justify that investment. And that, uh, in, in return, depends very much on the confidence that you put into uh, into the market that you're trying to serve with whatever you want to produce with what you're investing. And unfortunately, um, after all these uh, years of crisis, uh, almost a decade now, uh, the confidence uh, is is still rather low. Uh, I, I guess it's picking up. Uh, Nat- Natasha, and, and, uh, maybe you know more from from the investment service that that you've done. But uh, um, with confidence still being low, it's it's very difficult to. On the whole, there will be just less entrepreneurs who think, oh, it's worth uh, investing in the European markets. For example, I I think uh, if I'm not sure if the EU will be there, and I hope we all hope that the EU will be there, and we have to be careful in this podcast, I guess. But okay, if people have doubts about the existence of the EU or of the single market or the uh, the continuation of the continued deepening of, of, the, uh, of the single European market, then you obviously think twice whether you invest into self-driving electric cars in Europe or whether you do it in a, in a different market that's much bigger like uh, there are much bigger economies like the mm-hmm. US is bigger, China is bigger India is bigger so so you wonder if, if and, and then many of these new investments and new innovations depend of, on, on scale so if you, it only makes sense to put a lot of you know things into a system for electric cars or charging stations or whatever whatever it is if you believe that there's, there's a, as a long and, and continues and deepening uh, single market. Uh, so as long as there are doubts about it, and we all hope that the doubts will be dispelled during the course of this year, but uh, uh, then you you just think twice, and then it doesn't really matter if the money's cheap or not, uh, or it, it matters less. Well, we also That's wanted to talk about, <laughs> in, in this 
podcast, we also wanted to address a little bit what is what is employment and where does that that figure into this. Now we've we've talked about Keynes and you know the ideas from I suppose the thirties. You know, some of us might have studied American history and you know Roosevelt creating jobs, essentially having people dig holes and so on in the road to to create growth. At least that's the way. When I was fourteen, my teacher was talking about it. Probably it's it's an old theory now. Perhaps I don't know, but we've that was a focus on employment. Then we talked Natasha about let's say the monetarists saying it's more about you know how you control the money supply. And now it sounds like there's a mix of the two. Where does employment fit into the calculations of, let's say, the European Central Bank or other central banks at the moment? How important is it compared to controlling the money supply? And so, so uh, just a few words about employment. Employment is a concept that measures how active economies are. So, what does the share of the working age population? which is involved in the labor market and on the share that is involved in the labor market, who is working and who is not working. So this is a sort of real uh, measure of economic activity. Now, the link between... So it's the goal of everything. It's, well, it's, well if, if, if maximizing employment may or may not be a goal, uh, linking that back to central banks, the ECB has a single objective of price stability. The Federal Reserve in the U.S. has a double, dual objective of inflation on the one hand and employment development on the other hand. So I'm, I'm quoting this because there is a link between the two and there's a trade-off between the two. So you have inflation development on the one hand, employment, unemployment developments on the other hand. And usually over history, we are mentioning you know, uh, economic history, uh, there's one economist called Phillips um, who invited something called the Phillips curve, which basically says there's a trade-off be- between inflation and growth or inflation and wage dynamics. How does that work? When economic activity improves, that's what I was saying about supply and demand, mm-hmm. it puts pressure up on prices. So with improving economic dynamics, you have also inflation coming up. With decelerating economic dynamics, you have a deceleration of inflation. So that was the traditional relationship, and that's what the central bank was trying to play with uh, between the two. Now, nowadays, there's a bit of a doubt about the shape of that relationship. At the times, I don't know exactly when Phillips was living in the 70s, probably 60s. I, I should have looked it up. But uh, uh, there was a very nice downward sloping curve between the two. Now, people say, well, this curve might have shifted. This curve might have become flatter. And why do people say that exactly for what you were mentioning at the beginning? Uh, we have economic activity picking, picking up. The recovery is there, but inflation is still very low relative to what we have seen in the past. So it so might have been indeed that the curve had, was shifting as the uh, recovery was picking up, so the level of inflation was like following the shift of the curve, or the curve has become flatter, so whatever happens on employment and growth dynamics, nothing happens on the, on the side of inflation. This being said, as Marcus was saying, inflation is in fact picking up. And I think we have moved over the phase which a few years ago uh, some economists were saying, we live in a deflationary world, we will have deflation for a decade, it's like Japan for a few, you know, for the whole world and we will never be able to get out of it. 
you know, current circumstances seem to suggest that we still have very low inflation rates, but we might not be so trapped into a deflationary spiral. But when you say economic activity has picked up, uh, you mean uh, there is a but there's there's more jobs, or or you mean economic growth has picked up? Uh, so that's a very good point because for for a fact, economic growth has picked up on almost everywhere in the world. So what? Now, so yeah. what is economic growth first? First of all, how do we measure that? How we measure economic growth? So there's uh, growth. Is you know Marcus was showing explaining the growth of prices. Now economic growth refers usually to the growth of economic activity. So there's a measure of what we all produce in one year, and it's called GDP, so gross domestic uh, product. So it's a sum of all the value added that is you know uh, created in all parts of the economy, industries, services. Uh, you know, net exports, all those components. Typically, I mean, it's a very simple way to look at it. Economic growth looks at what consumption does, investment does, government spending, and net exports. So, so if, I, if I manage to start charging for my product uh, twice as much, that means that adds to economic growth? No. Yes and no. That's it it does add to the inflation, right? Right. So that's where the distinction between nominal growth and mm-hmm. real growth comes into play. And when we speak about economic growth, usually economists look, look at real economic growth. So they ignore, they correct for, for what you exactly uh, described as the evolution of prices without an increase in quantity. So real economic growth is the growth of the actual value added the output that 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 we produce so if, but if i if, sorry just to uh, get this straight so if i produce something like um, uh, like phones for example I, uh, how do i how do i make the economy grow to produce more phones yeah. so the, it's not so, enough if you so just charge more for the same amount of phones so that the real growth is about how many more activity yeah. so there that's is. a okay. very good example okay. this year you produce one phone $100 per phone. Next year, two options. You produce one phone, $200, or you produce two phones, $100 each. The nominal uh, uh, output is the same in both cases, but in the case where you have just doubled up the price of your phone, real economic growth will be zero, and mm. inflation will be 100 so, uh-huh. so that's exactly where we need to be very careful to measure real, real growth and not nominal growth. And well, and when we're talking about real here, the, that's popping out to me because we sometimes hear people talk about real interest rates as well. What's what's real interest rates? Oh, real interest rates. Okay, that's uh, that's yet another adjustment. Is um, how much do you say if I uh, I lend you money? Right, I lend you a hundred uh, euros. Please do. And uh, I ask you that next year you give me back a uh, hundred and four euros back. Right? Then the the nominal interest rate is four percent. You you have to pay me four percent more than I gave you. But uh, if at the same time the inflation was two percent, then you know the pain of you paying me hundred and four is less because the hundred and four isn't worth hundred and four anymore. It's w- worth less because even normally the hundred. You know what? What you could buy with hundred euros before now you have to pay hundred and two. 
euros next year because of the inflation. So that the difference between uh, the nominal invest, uh, interest rate minus the um, minus the inflation is then the real interest rate. So the real interest rate in this case is about two. I guess there's a slight uh, adjustment, but it's about two percent because uh, the other two you would have lost in any case by just keeping the money. Are there any other reals that we should be <laughs> mentioning here? We've had real interest rate, real growth. That's the main. That's Those the are the main, that, That's the reality. To to add perhaps to this real concept, <laughs> there's the real interest rate and there's the equilibrium or natural interest rate, which is yet another sophistication that economists are adding up to 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 the concept. Wow, what it's just getting way over my head right now. <laughs> you're, you're slipping down in your chair. Yeah, I can say. Yeah. So let's stick with the real it's a lot of stuff. Let's, let's stick really with the real good. ones. Yeah. yeah, so we've got the real ones, and sometime soon we'll do a podcast about, what was the other one? Natural. All right, I'll natural. write that down. Natural, I like that. We'll do it sometime okay. after we do something on green so investment or something. <laughs> Natasha and Marcus, thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. This was a dictionary of finance from the European Investment Bank, the EU Bank. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and other podcast platforms. And we'll see you next time on A Dictionary of Finance.